Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. Uh, I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Secrets of Story podcast. We had four episodes in a row a couple months ago. Boom, 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 boom. And then we took a break, as we always do. But now we are back. I am here. James is here, and we have a special guest. So we're going to go ahead and be honest with you folks at home. This is not the first time we've recorded this. We recorded the first half hour of this podcast, and then my computer crashed, and we were unable to recover the audio. So if things sound a little canned, it's because we might be repeating some things we've already said. But let's go ahead and have James, you a try for shot number two, to introduce our guest, because you did such a good job introducing him last time. Okay, our guest today is writer for young people, Tori Maldonado. Tori is not only a fantastic writer, he's a fantastic guy. I met him at some book festivals for my first book, The Order of Oddfish, but he has gone on to fantastic things. His book, What Lane, cited by Oprah Daly, the New York Times. Uh, his other novel, Tight, won the Christopher Award. It was an ALA notable book. Uh, NPR Washington Post Best Book of the Year. His first novel, Secret Saturdays, has, is still in print, even 10 years later. And so his newest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is Hands. Uh, it's a Junior Library Guild gold standard selection. It won a starred School Library Journal review. This guy has more starred reviews than I have reviews. He's also been, uh, he's hosted the 92nd Newbury Film Festival with me a couple times in Brooklyn. He is a native of Brooklyn, and he's been teaching there for 25 years. I know him. You're going to love him. Everybody, Tori Maldonado. Thanks so much for an epic introduction. It's going to be hard. I'm going to put the pressure on all of the people who introduce me in the future. Listen, this is how you do it. Do it like James Kennedy. <laughs> yes, that's a wonderful introduction. So, yes, welcome so much, Tori. It's great to have you here. So, yeah, so James has worked with you on the 92nd Newbury. I first met you at a party in Brooklyn about, oh, say, 15 years ago. And I was just a blogger at the time, but I was telling you about the stuff I was blogging about. And you're like, that's really good advice. I really like your writing advice. And boy, oh boy, did I make a good contact that night. Eventually, also a fan of my book when it came out, so much so that you, that you blurbed my second book. And then I went ahead and I blurbed one of your books. But uh, you were telling me before that your publisher decided not to use the blurb, which, you know, it hurts. It, it wounds me a little bit. I put a lot of work into these blurbs. You know, I pour my heart and soul into them. And then to have them cast aside by a publisher, it, oh I got to say it hurts. <laughs> Matt's introduction of Tori, somehow it's all about Matt. and his It's team. all about me. It's all about me. But I must admit, I have tossed aside blurbs as well. That Or I've had my publisher toss aside blurbs. James, have you ever tossed aside a blurb? I haven't gotten enough blurbs to toss aside. <laughs> But then you have just turned into my biggest hype man. You, I keep hearing these things third hand where they're like, hey, I ran into a guy named Tori Maldonado and that guy really likes you, man. Because uh, he kept talking about how much he likes your book and uh, both of your books. And it was, and this keeps happening. And then recently you were on Afi. There is a Y author who just goes by the name Afi. And he invited you on to guest blog, and you could have guest blogged on any topic in the world, but you decided to guest blog on the topic of Matt Bird. <laughs> and uh, it's just, it's embarrassing, man. It's, you're <laughs> such a big fan of mine, and it's just been so wonderful. Thank you so much for all the promotion you've given my book over the years. I have done my best to promote your books as well. I love your books. So what we are here to talk about here today is you have been using my advice and other writing advice 
to write, not just revise. So one thing we've talked about a lot on this podcast is to what degree my advice or other people's writing advice is good for writing or rewriting. Is it is my advice just rewrite advice or is it also advice that will help you write your first draft? So that was one of the things we wanted to talk about today because I think that, well, first let's talk about your book a little bit more because we're going to be talking about specifically how it applies to this book. So before, when we first recorded this, Tori, you summed up your book and then James said, actually, I'm going to go jump in and summarize your book better than you did. And indeed he did. James he is did. an excellent summarizer of other people's books. <laughs> I was hoping this turn around, instead of me starting, we should lead with James because after he did it, I was left with my jaw on the floor saying, wow, why didn't he go first? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, Hands, it's this great book. It's a very slim book. It's a very short book, uh, very kid-friendly in that way. It's about this kid, Trev. He's growing up in the projects in New York City. His father is dead and his problems kind of really start when his stepdad kind of pushes his mom around and physically abuses her. And he, the mom calls the cops. The stepdad is taken away by our hero, Trev, and he's adolescent. He's like, I realize I have to protect my mom in the future. I have to protect my sister. Like When my stepdad gets out of jail, what am I going to do? But he's also a great artist. And, um, and so it's kind of about what he does with his hands. Like He can make art, but he can also you know, learn how to fight. And he kind of goes through the book, kind of learning from the people around him and his circumstances. Like he trains to box a little bit, but he's also kind of like working at his art and he's kind of getting advice from all these people in his community. What should he do when his stepdad finally uh, gets out of jail? And I'm going to leave what happens at the climax. We can talk about that later. It's a really great book. Let me go ahead and just jump into one of my favorite elements of this book is that you get this 12-year-old boy who is training to box because he might have to physically face off with his stepfather when his stepfather gets out of prison. And I'm like, well, clearly we're not going to end in a big fist fight because this is not, it's more of a book about a spiritual journey than it is a book about physical confrontation. And you can tell pretty early on where this book is going to end with some sort of spiritual realization of who he should be as a young man. And it's not so much going to end in a big fist fight. But I'm like, but he's got to use his hands at some point. He's got to lay hands on somebody or else the book is not going to be satisfying. And he's got to beat somebody up. You can't just load up Chekhov's gun. You can't just load up all this potential energy and not release it. And I absolutely love, I don't want to, I advise people to pause right here and go read this book. It is 144 pages and it's really shorter than that because a lot of the chapters are, it's got a lot of half-page chapters that have some blank space underneath them. I love that you say in your uh, bio, Tori Maldonado is a teacher born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, where he still lives, and his thin books are praised for offering all of what thick books do and are inspired by his life and experiences of his students. So I love that's like the first thing you lead with is these are thin books, and I love thin books, and I love these books. I can't imagine there's any kid who you're going to put one of these books in their hands, and they're not going to go like, they're going to go like, ugh. Nobody, these are like the ultimate non-ugh books. <laughs> these are like, kids are going to given these books, it's like, finally, this is a book I can actually read. This is a book that is going to be fun, quick read. And this kid actually, some kids are going to say, this kid looks like me. But even if this kid doesn't look like them, they're going to go like, okay, this seems like a real kid. This seems like a real world story. And I am going to greatly enjoy this book. But let me go ahead and say what I was going to say. And that's that he's got to punch somebody. And I love that <laughs> he punches 
that when he finally gets in a situation where he may have to lay on some fists, he may have to punch somebody, he ends up punching out a window. And that solves the problem, you know, like that sort of intimidates the other person and resolves the situation. And that is such a perfect, you know, like you, cause you have to set it, you know, this is on the one hand, this is a book that is designed not to satisfy. This is a book about building up to a big fist fight that never happens. You're sort of teasing kids who are reading this book, like, Hey, read this book about a guy who, you know, kid who learns to use his hands and fist fight for himself, but it's not about that. It's about a spiritual journey. And, but you're like, but I'm going to satisfy you just enough so that he punches a window. What I love that solution to this sort of existential problem that you as a writer must have faced of he's got to punch something, but it's got to be realistic too. Like you can't have a 12 year old actually win a fist fight because he wouldn't, he would get his ass kicked. It would be brutal, <laughs> but, but it's totally believable that he would punch out a window and that would freak out the other people who would leave. Like that's something that we, that's a believable fight that he could actually win in the most weird indirect manner possible and yet totally believable you're like yes i could totally see this actually having happened this is a very believable way for this to go down be the craziest person in the room <laughs> be the craziest person in the room be the guy who punches at the window how did you end up on that solution I'm, at first i'm going to have to take some of that advice that james just shared and be the craziest person in the room and put that into my next book <laughs> um i i want to say that this is an out of an the world experience to be on the podcast with both of you. Number one, because I've heard your podcast before and your banter back and forth. I was like, I got to get in there. <laughs> I want to be a part of that. It sounds so fun. And, and already it is fun. Um, another reason that this is a out of um, this world experience is because James, I invited James to come speak at uh, the last public school that I taught at for 20 years. And when James came, he was out of this world as a presenter. And that's exactly what uh, I try to um, be when I present um, or I try to expose young people to presentations that are outside of this world. So they, the kids could, didn't have enough nice things to say about him. They just were like, oh, my God, he's so funny. And he was like, well, he reached across and he, I thought he was going to grab you. It was just and the adults, too, <laughs> were rolling. And they said, you know, you got to bring him back. Um, and so that was out of the out of this world with James. For you, Matt, I remember going back to that party in Brooklyn when I was talking with you and you said, you know, I, I examine visual media and movies to help writers write better. And I felt like you were speaking my love language <laughs> because... <laughs> When I was a young person, I didn't need really, really thick books. I didn't need long, boring movies. I needed something that was exciting and thrilling and fast-paced, as thrilling and exciting and as fast-paced as the world that I lived in. And yeah. I remember I was writing tight. It was the just like very beginnings of the manuscript. And I had told you, I said, I have a problem. Maybe you could solve it. I have a character and I fear that people are not going to like him. And how do I save him? How is, how can we, you know, have people hate him, but not a hundred percent hate him and kind of understand. And you gave me writing advice that I immediately went back to the laptop and implemented. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of young readers love Mike in tight. They say, Oh my God, 
I totally understand why he does what he does. It's rooted in this this tragic, sad backstory. We don't excuse what he's doing, but we understand it, and it makes him not a hundred percent unlikable. So I want to thank you for that moment. And I just oh, that's wonderful. I don't remember that at all. Yeah. I don't remember giving you a. I remember reading that book and loving it and blurbing it, but I don't remember uh, giving you a what what advice did I give you and what did you do? Okay, so here we go. I'm going to give you not just the advice, but I'm going to give you the page from The Secrets of Stories that when I read The Secrets of Stories, I said, wait, that's what Matt told me back when we were leaning (laughs) on the fireplace. You said, create, oh, this is on page 28 for everybody who's tuning in. So grab yourself a copy of The Secrets of Story, flip to page 28. And just so that I don't mess your words up, I'm going to turn to page 28 myself. While your audience is reading your book, There's no better way to create instant identification with your hero or heroine than by having a mean character interrupt her and consider that person or their hobby useless. This is better than a dozen saved cats. Yes. And (laughs) what I found um, that I did with Mike is Mike... He his story is interrupted. Was there a specific thing that he was interrupted or judged for? The specific thing that he was he was interrupted was there's a scene where in tight both boys are watching the CW, The Flash. This is where Mike becomes the main character and does the interrupting that you talk about, so that the readers identify with Brian. So Brian mm-hmm. starts to share. Wow, this scene it reminds me of us when we were doing, and it describes a dare that the boys were doing. And as he's so elated and excited and kitty, innocent and effusive, Mike interrupts him. And Mike, yep. not just interrupts him, but adds a meanness to the moment that readers have told me they instantly identified with Brian. They were like, whoa, yep. that's messed up. <laughs> like, he didn't even let him finish his sentence. And then on top of that, he dissed him for no reason. What's up with this kid? Mm. So I use that in that moment and there are other moments too, where I was trying to create that instant identification that, that you talked about with Brian by having Mike just interrupt him and be mean and criticize for no reason. Great way to instantly bond us to the main character because we've all been there. The one moment in, and I'll get back to what I was, to, to I jumped way ahead before and uh, I jumped too far ahead. I will come back to that. But the one moment in Hands where I was like, that feels like a Matt Bird moment was when he's spending the whole book preparing for the moment when his stepdad gets out of prison. And then he finds out his stepdad is getting out of prison earlier than he thought he was going to. Timeline moved up. (laughs) Yes. I thought I clocked the same thing. I was like, timeline got moved up. There's the Matt Bird moment. Yes. (laughs) That's, that is one of my most specific pieces of advice I give is that it is always good to have the timeline moved up, the timeline of when when the big confrontation is going to happen, get moved up. You say that you are have gained a lot from my books. Your books feel not at all formulaic or not at all written according to someone else's plan. So I'm not getting that as much from your books as you say that you're getting because these just feel like organic good, well-written stories to me. And that, that's quality stitching. Quality stitching is when you don't see the seams. <laughs> exactly. But that was the one point in your book where I'm like, oh, that's something I may have contributed to you this did. book. That you is did. the timeline gets moved up. You did. That That was another moment where I was trying to create um, instant identification that you talk about and instant empathy with the character because that moment we have the main character, Trev, opening up in a way that he's never opened up. 
to his best friend, Pete. And in this moment where everything just feels as if the, the lake has become placid and peaceful and smooth, a storm hits. And we hear mm-hmm. timelines moved up. The dad is here <laughs> now. The threat, the threat um, isn't on the horizon. It's in your face. But then you yeah. make this very brave choice of not having the stepfather show up in the fire scene because the book is about his spiritual journey. And once he realizes that he has the resources already that he needs without having to learn how to fight his stepfather, and once his mother has told him, this is not your responsibility, it's not your responsibility to decide whether or not he reenters our life or whether or not you need to beat him up or protect me from him, then the story is over. Or the story's not over, but the story, it has reached an inner climax <laughs> so that the exterior climax is not necessary when you said that, because that's what the book is really about. When you said that the story is over, there are a lot of young people who have read the book and they're like, this can't be over. It has to be a part two to this. So it's really great to go visit these schools. But at the same time, I wonder if I'm going to make it out of these schools alive because the- <laughs> Kids are really upset so, at how hard I applied your advice. So when Matt calls it a, uh, a spiritual journey, I understand why he does that by his own system. But when he says spiritual journey, I think that kind of mischaracterizes it. It sounds like he's sitting on top of a mountain and meditating. But what, what it seems to me is it's more of a social journey. This is one of the all-time great books of uncle magic. Oh, thank you. Uh, this guy has a lot, Trev, our main character, has a lot of uncles, not some related by blood, some related by kinship networks, some just like friends of the family. We've got uh, five of them. One of them, his uncle Lou, died when he was four, but he, that's kind of like the uncle so that he kind of, he always hears about his uncle Lou and he hears about, and that's kind of like the uncle of unconditional love. Yes. And then there's Quick, who is kind of a guy at the boxing gym who the boys twig onto and ask to train them. Um, and Quick says no, because uh, he made a promise not to train him because uh, he doesn't want him to end up uh, as a fighter, wants him to have something better. So that, that's another uncle. But he cares about him, but he cares about him enough to refuse to train him, which is an interesting move. There's Uncle Frankie, who's kind of like a working class guy who has his own garage. And like that's an, an, another way uh, he kind of gives advice that's kind of cogent to that. Then there's a drug dealing kind of uncle, Puff who is treated in this very kind of refreshingly unjudgmental way. A kid says, why does he have all this great stuff? And she's like, well, because he did bad things. But then they kind of like pass over that. We show that, you know, he is very generous to Trev and cares about him. And the mom tells him too. Like, even though he does bad, you're not God. Don't judge him. Yeah, exactly. And then there's Uncle Larry, who's kind of like the uncle, as the Pachinko ball falls down the machine and hits the various pegs, it seems like this is the uncle that he fits in with most who is like a librarian. And it was kind of like while they're watching Return of the Jedi together, it kind of like has his, you don't really talk about it in the book, but anybody who's seen Return of the Jedi knows, oh, Luke solves this problem by not fighting. Mm-hmm. But then interestingly, Trev is himself an uncle uh, or an yes. uncle in training to Cole, who's this little kid who lives in his building, who kind of admires uh, Trev's art and they kind of work on art together. And then, but then after Trev puts his fist through that window, uh, then, like, like Trev sees Cole, this like, little kid, like, swinging his fists around because, so, you know, I want to be like you. And then he realizes, like, his actions are not just have consequences for himself, but also for, like, people who look up to him. 
But it's interesting that he's got all these uncles and the, he does listen to his mom to an extent, but there's also this English teacher, Mrs. Clark, mm -hmm. and she tries to help him, but we just get this feeling she can't. Like she, he's not going to listen to her and the kind of hope that she can give him is not kind of rooted in his community and kinship networks. And so it's, it's not going to help him. And he kind of realizes that and kind of refuses her help. That, I, I take it that's kind of an intentional choice there, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> right now, I can just imagine my editor, Nancy Paulson, listening to this podcast mm -hmm. and saying, did you hear what James just did? How he just was snappy in his answers and he had punch to his answers and it wasn't long. That's what you need to do, Tori. We her and I were having <laughs> her and I were having a conversation and she was like, Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff, but you gotta be snappier and you gotta be able to do what James Kennedy did. <laughs> James, that was wonderful. That was funny. You know, um this you 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 wonderfully summarize how this story is a story about a boy who's in a cloudy situation. And he, and he learns to embody the Maya Angelou quote, be a rainbow in somebody else's cloud that his mom continually repeats to him throughout hands. And he finds rainbows in his tough neighborhoods, in his tough neighborhood, in the form of his uncles. And then he learns to become his own type of rainbow, which he becomes you know, um, a rainbow. He maintains being a rainbow to the, the little eight-year-old, little Cole. So... I wanted to circle back to something that you mentioned, uh, Matt, about transgressions. This is an SOS and S and uh, the secrets of story. And that is something that inspired a few scenes inside hands. I'm going to turn to page 58 really quickly. Can I read this real quick? Yep. You totally identify with the hero situation and emotions, but you get to vicariously experience the thrill of a much bigger transgression than you would ever actually commit, followed by the pain of the big consequences you'll never have to suffer, followed by the gratification of a big transformation that's always out of your reach. And if you, along the way, get to inhabit a glamorous world, you would never otherwise get to visit all the better. And that is something that I use with hands because I wanted to share a world that people have not seen, people have not lived in, that not even most New Yorkers have lived in. It's a very niche Brooklyn neighborhood, the neighborhood that I grew up projects. And the character does things, like you said, you know, um, you want the reader to experience the thrills that they wouldn't actually commit. And you had mentioned it. You said it's building towards this fight. That's not going to happen. He has to hit something. And there are so many young people who, when they read the, the scene where he punches the window and breaks it, or they hear me read that scene, you could just tell. This is something that they wish they could do. Some, they, they feel at, through Trev the power of smashing through that window and, and the force that he's been building the entire time. Yet they don't actually do it. And then you, you experience all of the twists and turns that comes out of him breaking that window because then the cops are looking for him. And there's this crazy ride that he now is on. And readers, again, they're there for every second. They want to be there for every second of those twists and turns of that ride. Yet they don't have to actually experience 
cops looking for them. So I've heard um, that's some of the advice that I've applied there. You were talking about a spiritual awakening. You were saying like, okay, this book is not about a fist fight. It, this book is about a spiritual awakening. And that is true because the Star Wars scene, you know, this book, page 61 uh, of Secrets of Story, it's important to remember that your audience must identify with your hero, but they need not sympathize with the hero's larger goal. And I've had a lot of young readers say that I was able to do, to follow your advice there, that they identify with protecting their family. They feel responsible for their family. Um, I ask young people, I say, okay, so how many of you, um, if someone dissed your mother or hurt your mother, you would want to fight back? And all the young people raise their hands. Adults raise their hands too, right? Yeah. And so they identify so strongly with Trev at the same time that they don't agree with his larger goal of stopping drawing and picking up his hands for boxing. And you know, it's really exemplified in um, Meg Medina, our national ambassador for young people's literature. She's on a national tour and on her national tour, she talks about hands. That's awesome. She, talks, she starts with this and it's so cool. She starts with, how many of you feel it's okay to use your hands and immediately the everyone in the audience says no never it's never okay to use your hands and she says okay and then she applies the advice that you say okay do you identify with this hero she asks what if someone hurts your mother all of a sudden you see everyone's faces change and you hear yeah. the change everyone says no and so though that identifiability that you were saying you have to have with um, underlying issues and underlying struggles. I felt like that was something that I, like imagine a post-it of, of your advice and it was just right there. And I was just like, okay, make this kid as identifiable as possible, but they don't agree with his, his end game. Yep. You know That's what I it. totally identified with? When the librarian said, oh, let's watch the Star Wars movie. And the kid was like, oh, I've only seen the new ones. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to kids. He's like, oh, yeah, I've only seen the prequels. I'm like, what? No, those aren't the good ones. You, you don't have any idea. I, I very much identify with the Gen X librarian, Uncle Larry, at that moment. He's like, wait a minute. You haven't heard of Return of the Jedi, Empire Strikes Back? <laughs> but I know James it must have been painful for you where then he's like you've never seen the original trilogy let's go watch it then it's like let's start with the third one and I know, <laughs> I know yeah. James you must have been like no you can't start with the third one <laughs> but of course it was perfect it was perfect because there's all these parallels between the third one specifically and this book and his story and this was exactly the story he needed right now was the third one even if you and I as old-fashioned nerds James are like no, you can't ever start with the third one. You've got to start from the beginning. But it was uh, it was beautifully done. Well, that is wonderful. You know, you're quoting stuff from my book that I've forgotten about. <laughs> I, uh, I don't remember writing that, but uh, I am so glad it is helpful to you. So were you revising this and said, oh, this isn't working. But what if I move the timeline up and have the father getting out of prison earlier than he was supposed to? And suddenly there's a lot more urgency to the story. Was that something that came out in revision or was that something that, you know, at what point did you add that element to the story? I think my, my editor, Nancy Paulson, she knows 
the advice that you put inside the secrets of story. And it, and I wish I could give myself credit and say, Oh, I followed every rule that you shared. Um, <laughs> well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> but um, I had deviated from the secrets of story and I created a different ending for hands. And it was then that my editor reined me back in and she had said, Mm-mm, no, 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 no. This is not a book about leading up to a fistfight. This is not a book about the actual confrontation. This is a book about hope. And it's a book about a spiritual journey that this boy goes on and that this boy becomes a rainbow in the cloudy situation. Oh, so yes. in your original version, the stepdad does come back and there is a fist fight? No, there's not a fist fight, but they face off. And, oh, and fascinating. And so, I would love to read that. I would love to read like the alternate version. You and a few other um, people. Because there are people <laughs> come to me and they said, wait, you wrote that? Can I read that? <laughs> I, I mean, I would love to. Or, or maybe if there's a sequel. They, they face off. And then suddenly they realize they're really going to get along together and they go around fighting crime together. <laughs> yes. Oh, perfect. And then I kept waiting. Oh, the stepdad's going to come back. Stepdad's going to come back. And the fact that the stepdad didn't come back, in a way, um, I have this whole theory. It, it made it, the book stay with me longer because I had a, a, a couple of moments of frustrated expectations. And I don't like art that goes down smooth. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's so many, much art that it just it goes down really smooth and you don't think about it when it's done because no questions linger. Like I just saw, you know, uh, Tobin, M.T. Anderson, he's got, there's that movie that just came out based on his book, uh, Landscape with Invisible Hand. Mm-hmm. Someone told me I have to watch it. It's good. I just saw it. It's about like alien invasion, but it's very bleak and eerie and quirky. And, um, and I saw it with my girls and, and my wife. And at the end of it, it's like profoundly dissatisfying. Mm. But in a bleak, eerie, intentional way, there are some questions that are just not wrapped up. And then so you just have to live with those questions. And so now I'm thinking about it days after because they didn't wrap stuff off. It's the same reason I, I like, like David Lynch at the end of the third season of Twin Peaks. I was like, what? You didn't answer all my questions. And then every single day since then, I've been thinking about the ending of Twin Peaks season three. Similarly here, I, it's always going to be a live question in my mind what is going to happen when the stepdad does inevitably come home. So there's something to be said for, you know, wrapping everything up. You know, so it's not like the end of, say, the Martin Short movie with Randy Quaid or Dennis Quaid, in which he goes inside the the body. Inner space. uh, Inner space. Terrible ending. He just drives off and you think, oh, he's going to confront him. And then credits. (laughs) But this, I think, is necessary not to have, almost like the stepdad is this looming Sauron-like figure as soon as he comes on stage, he's going to be less impressive, mm-hmm. you know, because he can never be as impressive as how he's looming over him, you know, in his imagination. Mm-hmm. But just art that has spikes sticking out of it so that when you're swallowing it, it doesn't go down your throat so easily and it kind of tears up your throat a little bit while on the way mm-hmm. down or it sticks in your throat for a while before you can fully metabolize it. That's what I like. And that's why I like the ending of this book very oh, much. Thank you. I appreciate it. The, there are two things that come to mind. And these two things are anchored in the secrets of story um, that relate to what you just said, James. One is, so on page 61, Matt, you write about how do you move the reader from scene to scene? And having Mm -hmm. the question stay in the reader's 
head of what does the hero do next? And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you write it here. I'm going to read it. You say, likewise, the way to get from scene to scene is not to ask what does the hero do next, but rather what is the next step in the progression of this problem? And for me as a teacher, my goal with storytelling through books is to get young people not just to move from scene to scene, but move from book to book. I want to, my goal is to hook kids to books. So that's why, James, I wrote it that way where there was this unsatisfying cliffhanger at the end that makes readers say, wait, what happened? I need the next book. And that makes them want to move on to the next book that I write. And there are a lot of people who are asking the sequel. But at this point, the hero has solved the problem. Like if this book didn't solve the problem, then I would be like, well, I, you, you can't. You can't give me credit for this book. I I disown it. I disclaim it. But I I didn't feel that way at all. I feel like in this book, this was about the solving of a large problem. And the hero did solve the problem. The problem was a problem of he was looking at the world wrong. And at the end of the book, he's looking at the world right. And so therefore yeah, well, the problem is solved. I, yeah, well, it's, it's like he, he's, he's, he, the nature of the problem changes over the book. At the beginning, it's like, I have to beat up my stepdad when he comes back. And by the end of it, he's restated the problem in his mind. He's realized that the problem that he wanted to solve at the beginning is not the problem that he's actually confronted with in his life. Um, and I think that a lot of good stories are like that. that like the main character goes off on some quest thinking that they're going to do one thing, but it ends up deepening and becoming a richer thing. And usually at the, the beginning, it's like, I'm going to go off and seek my fortune. I'm going to go off and seek glory. I'm going to get this trinket or something. But then, you know, especially at the midpoint, they make some realizations. Like, oh, my God, that was what I wanted. But this is now it's, I, I'm confronted with things that I actually need or the people around me need. And that's when it becomes deeper and they, they, the hero really has to dig in deep. Mm-hmm. And I think which is what this book did. And it's incredible that it did it in such a few pages. <laughs> yeah, Thanks. it's such a it's such a slim book. It's such a effective, taut, tight little book. Tight was tight, and this is also tight. It's funny that that was one of your titles because that's another way, that's a way of describing your books. Yeah, I feel like if he had not worked it out with his mother, you know, because that was really, I think that him wanting to beat up his stepdad was partially him not wanting to confront his mother. I think he wanted to confront his stepdad because he didn't want to confront his mother. And he didn't want to deal with her, the person who was actually in his life. He wanted to focus all his energy on someone who was not in his life. And that I think the real climax of the book is when he confronts his mother and she's like, that is not your problem. <laughs> this is you, your, your stepdad is my problem. You have to trust me to deal with this. And then, yeah, but that's not the final scene. Interestingly enough, then he's got a couple more uncle scenes after mm-hmm. that. But I think he's got another scene with the boy who he's teaching to do art and then another uncle scene. And I think there's two more uncle scenes after that. And then it's, it's just very satisfying, but it's, doesn't feel very Matt Birdian. <laughs> Thank you. Well, this is a question that I have for you, Matt, because I tried to apply your advice and I was wondering if I applied your advice correctly. You were talking about irony. You were talking about having ironic scenes and ironic scene outcomes. One thing that comes to mind is page 37 when you say each scene will be more meaningful if the hero encounters a turn of events that upsets some pre-established ironic pre-assumptions about what would happen. Likewise, the conclusion of each scene will be more meaningful if the character's actions result in the ironic scene outcome. And 
I, I was trying to add that irony. And every time I did it, I was like, is this what Matt's talking about? Is this what Matt's talking about? <laughs> because, for example, his uncle Frankie, that both you, James, and you, Matt, mentioned, he is built like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He's mm. huge. I mean, he could easily dispose of Trev's stepdad. And we know that Uncle Frankie has a backstory where he has street connections where he could do that. And so he, Trev goes to his uncle Frankie, who's historically been his savior. And the irony is his savior tells him, I can't save you. Yep. I can't get involved. And I was like, did I do it? Did I do it, Matt? <laughs> you did it. Yes. You did it. Tony. Then there's another part. There's another part. You ready? Here's another part where I was like, I'm trying to add the irony that Matt was talking about. Ironic outcomes. <laughs> so Trev goes to the one place where he can get the training to learn how to fight his stepdad. He goes to the rec center. And not only does it, it's not only is it the place that has the perfect training for him to fight his stepdad, but he finds the best trainer quick. And only to find out that no one will train him. And I was wondering, uh -huh. was that ironic there too? Did I do the Matt Bird? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, especially because, you know, we think we've seen this story where no one will train him. And then he, you know, steps up and impresses someone and someone decides to, you know, like, you may just have something, kid, I'm going to train you. You know, and uh, we've seen that boxing story so many times. And this is, you know, so much more realistic and so much more believable in terms of like, first of all, you're 12. And this is not your problem. And you are trying to solve the wrong sorts of problems in the wrong sorts of ways. And he has a community. This is a book about, you know, you quote a couple of times, it takes a village to raise a child. And it's sort of him realizing that, like, I don't have, you know, my father died. My stepdad was a bad guy. I don't have what I need in terms of a direct parental father figure. But I have this whole village. I have all these uncles. I have this whole world. And I am not going to be led astray here in the boxing gym because I am still being raised by my village. And my village is still looking out for me. And my village reaches to his dismay. His village reaches as far as being inside this boxing gym and is taking care of him. I thought, yeah, I thought there was just a lot of wonderful ironies in the story. Each of the uncles is ironic in their own way. Each of the uncles is not immediately what they seem to be, whether it's the, you know, drug dealer who turns out to be relatively gentle or the nerdy uncle who you realize is not what you would expect to find in this place. And it's it's really wonderful. It's exactly what you want. Yeah, yeah I, I have to say, Tori, that to hear you say, did I do it right, Matt? <laughs> it, it just grates on my soul. Like, you're the one who wrote four, like, celebrated books. Matt should be asking you, is my advice okay? The, the acid test is, will Matt's rules survive contact with your work rather than the other way around? I love that. I love that. You know, on um, page 45 of The Secrets of Story, you said you want to write the most interesting story that you identify with. And I think yes. what helps is that in moments where I may have tried to apply The Secrets of Story advice and wondered, Will it pass the litmus test? I think that the identifiability factor helps it pass it, you know, even by accident. I wanted to, to circle back to something else that you had mentioned, because you were mentioning about the fight, right? The fight. Um, you're saying, okay, so this boy sets out on this journey to 
learn how to use his hands to defend his his mom, you know, to fight his stepdad. And the whole time you, you you're saying, the reader is saying, this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. It's not going to actually result in a fight. And even Trev somewhat admits that that's not what he's ready for. Yes. Chapter fifty six when they're watching Star Wars, Return of the Jedi. If I couldn't read this scene, he says, yes. um, soon we're back to watching the movie and we're having more fun. But soon the fun stops because this movie starts reminding me of my life. Skywalker, Luke Skywalker, he's squaring up to fight his dad, Darth Vader. I ask, hold up. Is Luke really going to fight his pops? Yeah. Uncle Larry says. And it's one of the best scenes ever. Watch. I watch and feel like I'm staring at my future. It's me in danger. Not Luke. I try hiding my reaction to this scene. Um, pause. You want more popcorn? He points. Popcorn bowls full. I meant soda. Want more soda? Trev, he points at our cups. They full. I need to pee. Uncle presses pause. His street ESP scans my face. Trev, the scene is bugging me. I found my cracked knuckles. Uncle, just tell me. Luke wins, right? He eyes my knuckles. What if he doesn't? And so we, we've experienced what you were talking about, that we know it's not going to go there. And even in his heart, he's admitting. It's like, I don't want it to go there when I don't want to face this moment. Yeah. I mean, we we get it. He's a better uncle than me because I made my uh, nephew watch Aliens all the way through. And he was crying. And I was like, it's only 20 minutes left. Um, <laughs> James. Up in your skin. <laughs> James, that's awful. Um, he just graduated from Dartmouth. He's fine now. But, like, <laughs> But yeah, no, it's, this was so, oh my God, I have so been there with my own kids and with other kids who have come over to watch movies at the house and with uh, the the way in which you don't say, this movie is making me uncomfortable, the way in which you say, hey, uh, I gotta use restroom or I gotta go do this or I gotta go do that. Watch it, it's good, it's good. I have to do this, (laughs) you're gonna do it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I've certainly been there, but no, it's, it wouldn't have been satisfying if the book had ended with this fight. It's, you know, though that scene, you're right. He sort of knows in that scene, he's already figured out that that is not, would not be a satisfying ending of Return of the Jedi if he just, after all this buildup, if he just killed Vader. And it would not be a satisfying ending of this book if he fought and either beat or lost to his stepdad. And that this is, there's something more going on. There's something more going on in Return of the Jedi. There's something more going on in this book. And that's great that that is the, you know, that it's while watching that movie that he sort of realizes that there's something more going on. Let me just say, you do such a good job reading that scene. I love you. You recorded the audiobook and it's great. You do something that I've never heard anybody do in an audiobook, which is that you put emotion into the chapter numbers. You're like, Chapter 42. <laughs> I wasn't sure at all what I was going to do next. Chapter 43. Then we did this. <laughs> I, I, I did that because I wanted Penguin to keep asking me back to narrate my books. 
I want them to say, oh, he, he sets himself apart. He's a standout. We got to have him back. You're trading on your authenticity for these books. And so like, they're not going to get like some 55 year old white guy to, to do it. You know, it's, 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 it's gotta be you. Yeah. James Earl um, Jones is definitely not narrating these books. <laughs> that would be awesome. But uh, yeah, no, I, they tried to, when I sold my first book on audio, they were like, we're going to buy it on the condition that you not record it because we hate it when authors record their own books. And I'm like, okay, fine. That was recorded books. The second book, Penguin Random House did their own audio book. And they're like, we want you to record it. You've got a podcast. We know you can talk. We want you to record this book. So then I was like, okay. So I tried reading it to my daughter and I was reading it to my daughter. And the first people I quote in the book are the girls from Little Women. And the girls from Little Women have a lot of personality. And so I was inevitably acting out their parts when I read oh them. God. And I was like, you know, and then Joe said, and then Meg said. So I'm like, okay, so now I'm acting. So now I'm reading this audiobook and I'm acting. And then the next quote is from Black Panther. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, all right, time to break out my, my Wakandan accent and do some acting as Black Panther. And then I'm like, oh crap, I cannot record this audiobook. And then the next, then I got to House on Mango Street. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, time to bust out my Latinx accent. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to record this audiobook. So I called Penguin Random House back and I said, do not do it. I said, hire the same person who narrated my first book, Eric Michael Summer, and they did that. The world was spared my Wakandan accent. Just in the same way that uh, I would love to read this alternate final chapter of Hands, <laughs> I really need this recording of Matt doing all of his accents so I can blackmail him. I love <laughs> yes. it. I love it. The, um, in Secrets of Story, one of the pieces of advice is you want to write the most interesting story you identify with. And I think in the, um, the secrets of audiobook narration stories that you, that you write, <laughs> you, you might want to include... You want to write the most accurate voice that you can narrate in the booth. <laughs> yes, there are certain things I should have avoided. With, that, uh, hands, I did not know. With hands, when both of you were queuing into the uncles and how important the uncles were, there's this um, person, her name on Twitter is The Literacy Advocate. And she got in touch with me and she said, you know, I read everything. Some people will say that they read 100 books a year. I read 500 to 600 books a year, and I read everything from the earliest elementary all the way to adults. And she said, uh, hands is unlike anything that I've read, especially the uncle scenes. She describes the uncle Mm -hmm. scenes as a master class in um, character development. Here's the thing. I dove right into creating those uncle scenes. And um, when you had said in the sequence of story, write the story you most identify with, these uncles are based on actual uncles I had. Here's the Mm. rub. When in the audio booth and recording the audio book, I realized the voices you hear in your head don't sound exactly the same when they come out your mouth. (laughs) Because it was so hard to do all the different uncles. So I hope I achieved you know, some accuracy with that. Oh, it's the hardest thing in the world. Like when I read books to my kids, like I came up, I read the seven Harry Potter books separately to each of my kids. And I came up with a different British accent for each of the hundred speaking parts. 
and it was hard. And I set out. Uh, it was I. I put a lot of work into that. But uh, and then you know, I read all, I read a lot of Marvel comics to my son, and I've got you know different accents for every single person in Marvel comics. It uh, you can kill yourself trying to do this stuff. But James, have you ever re- read one of your own audiobooks? I don't think that I would be good to write read my own audiobooks. Bride of the Tornado, which just came out, and The Order of Oddfish, my first book, those are all, both from the point of view of girls, so it doesn't work. And Jared and No, which came out in 2021, I I just don't think I had the voice for it. And I, I think all, and also, I mean, I'm fully aware that I have a slight lisp, and that, that's Oh, no, I've not... never noticed. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, have a, I have a problem with my L's, and I'm like, I... Normally, you know, I have two podcasts. So I don't worry about it too much having a speech impediment, but I was very much, as soon as they said, we want you near your naughty book, I'm like, what about my L's? But I've never noticed you as having a lisp at all. Well, some people notice it immediately. And right now, I, like even just talking about it, I am super like <laughs> uh, self-conscious about it. You, you know what occurred to me about, <laughs> uh, about, about hands is whether it's hands or it's do the right thing, in this neighborhood, windows always get the worst of it. <laughs> <laughs> the windows, if they could have a voice, they'd say, what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just sitting, I'm just standing here. I, you can look through me. I'm here. I don't say anything. And then suddenly people are throwing trash cans through me. <laughs> They're punching me out. Like you, you got to find a different way to solve your problems than breaking me and my brethren. Uh, it's funny. Spike Lee says that the white critics who watched Do the Right Thing were more upset about him breaking the window than they were upset about Ready Rahim being killed by the police. Uh-huh. And that's certainly true in, in Hans as well. Absolutely. You get the feeling the police are more upset about the broken window than they would be if he had actually punched out his sister's boyfriend. That is a genius connection because we noticed that the police presence only shows up in Hans. And they're trying to apprehend the person who broke the window. Yeah. And I'm such a white guy that I'm like, you know, it's a good thing he just broke the window. He's not going to get in trouble with the police like he would be if he beat up his sister's boyfriend. And no, of course, that's that's the one way he would get in trouble <laughs> is that, you know, property damage. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's uh, that's not allowed. But actual human on human violence would have been more acceptable. So I as a white reader, was completely failing to understand the sort of unforgiving rules or failing to predict the unforgiving rules of where they live. But as soon as it happened, I'm like, oh, of course. (laughs) Right. Well, here's something (laughs) else that I expected. It didn't happen. I thought, okay, he becomes friends with P. They're quick friends. And then I was like, they're they're both kind of very interested in boxing. I'm like, ah, sooner or later, they're going to fight. Was that ever a possibility in your mind, Tori? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I never thought that they, those two would um, fight with each other. I just, I just thought, what, what, well, there was a piece of advice that you had in The Secrets of Story that made me make pee. When you say simply take two very different types of characters and force them to rely on each other in a unique way. And both of those boys, um, they have a lot of overlaps, but they have um, a lot of differences because P, he's an adoptee. He doesn't know who his real mom and who his real dad is. And then contrast it with the very different character of Trev, who he knows exactly who his mom is. He has um, a stepdad. He knows who his dad was and his dad passed away. So, but we forced them into this situation where they rely on each other. And one of the ways that they rely on each other is they both are 
getting better at boxing. They're both helping each other develop hand skills. Well, you just need, I love, I like your variety of characters just because, you know, you've got a problem in that you were writing about, like, you. the last thing you want is for people to go like, oh, that's what things are like in the projects. That's what people are like in the projects. Yes. These are the standard characters you would find in the projects. So you need to have a lot of characters to go like, well, no, you know, this is not the thing that you will find in the projects. You know, this is, this is the wide variety of the human experience mm-hmm. that you will find anywhere. Let's talk about a little bit. Let's talk about how different this book is from The Order of Oddfish. Let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about the idea of... Right. Like, L- you listeners are, are imagining James has his boxing gloves on and I have my boxing gloves on. And they're like, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. These two are about to go at it. Hands. You guys need to show hands right now. Um, uh, I think that... Uh, that no, but I mean, called, let's you and him fight. Um, <laughs> That was, uh, that, my mother would always say that. My mother is from New York. She would always say, let's you and him fight. But no, but let's talk about just the idea of writing for kids in a way that this might be the book they need to solve their problems. I mean, this gets to the heart of secrets of story to a certain extent is I say the purpose of storytelling is to teach each other to solve problems. And James says, no. James says that's not why storytelling was invented, to teach each other to solve problems. And this book is very much a book that is going to help its readers solve their own problems in their own lives. And Order of Oddfish is not, to a certain extent. Or is it? James, is that fair for me to say that, you know, I think Tori is very focused on, is this the book that my readers need? And that is not something that you were focused on when you write children's books. And are you guys just two fundamentally different types of authors or are you secretly doing the same thing? I, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's about the communication of a vision for me. And I think for some people, that is what they want uh, or, or need on some certain level. Like there have been people who have like responded to it in that way. Um, but am I teaching certain lessons? No. Like with any kind of piece of narrative, there are lessons you can extract. It's just like the nature of narrative that it's going to lend itself to that, but it's not the uppermost thing in my mind. But the thing is, what do I know? Like I have one book that kind of came and went back in 2008, and Tori has four books that are much more celebrated. So he's probably more on the right track. Oh, I don't think either of you is on the right or wrong track at all. I just think that it's fascinating to see the two of you as, in some ways, you two are like the opposite poles of children's writing. <laughs> I just thought it was really interesting. <laughs> I thought it was interesting to have Tori on the show because Tori is, you know, so focused on like this book is going to be a tremendously fun and interesting and um, lively read for anybody who is just going to enjoy reading it, but it's also going to be a useful book in a way that. James, I think you are you would resist having uh, that amount of utility in your book. Although maybe yeah, there are people who read, maybe there are people who read Order of Oddfish and it's like, wow, I, I needed to read this right now. I, I think I wanted it to be funny. Like I, want, I, I, I wanted it to be something that you read for enjoyment. I wanted to have like some depth to it, but it's not depth that is necessarily on the surface. I, I did I, I wanted it to be ambiguous in some ways. I, I don't think that, but it's also a super long book and it's a super niche book. 
I bet that when I went into Tory school and they liked my presentation, but maybe some of them took a look at the fact that the book was 400 pages long <laughs> and in the same way that like they are attracted to the fact that Tory's books are so short, they're probably instantly repulsed by the fact that my book is so long, except for maybe one weirdo in the back of the room <laughs> who was me 30 years ago, God, 35. But I guess we can only write the kind of books that we can write. You know what I mean? And I, I, there's a lot of different kinds of books. And I, I, there's, uh, yeah, there's no social utility to The Order of Oddfish at all. I should just embrace that <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and, and kind of be a little bit proud of it while still celebrating like the social utility of a book like Tori's, which also, they also overlap. Like they, they both like create these worlds uh, that you kind of are intrigued by. They both have a variety of characters. In Tori's case, it's more impressive because he has so many characters in such a short amount of space that are so, you know, vividly brought to life. Whereas it takes me 400 pages, but like the, I, I think in both of them, like they're, like hopefully they're delightful to read and they can be, just experienced as a delight apart from any kind of social utility. Nobody wants to read a book saying, nobody sits down to read a book and says, oh, I can't wait to be taught a lesson. Right. You know, they sit down to read a book, to read a book in, the, in my case, like, oh, this is going to be really weird and kind of funny. And in his book, it's going to be like, oh, this is going to be, oh, this kid's going to learn how to fight. That, that's interesting. And that's kind of like me. And there's situations where I want to learn how to fight. And uh, yeah, there, there's room for all all kinds of books, thank God. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that I'm a little bit less concerned with social utility than Tori Maldonado, possibly because he is a teacher and I'm not, or when I was a teacher, I was like a terrible one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I come from a neighborhood where the um, high school dropout rate is over 60%. And it's not because mm -hmm. the people who dropped out of school um, aren't smart. They're some of the smartest people that I met in my life. It's because of how unattractive learning was. Instead of being a weapon for mass instruction, it was a weapon of mass destruction, of love for school. School wasn't cool. And I can't count how many times I've walked by young people talking to an adult and said this, wait, what did you just say about this book? Did you, you say it's gonna teach me a lesson? I don't wanna read it. Right. Is this book fun? Is this book like this movie? Is it? Then they'll read it. And so I try to have the Kaiser Solse effect. You remember the usual suspects? Oh, yeah. The right. very end of the movie, the detective has this aha moment. He says, wait a minute. And he realizes <laughs> all of these things retrospectively. And that's the effect that I want on my reader. I want my reader to just have this amazing roller coaster experience. And at the end, say, I want to get back on that ride because there's more conflict baked into the character's DNA that I want and into their situation that I want to uncover. But I also want them to say at the end of that ride, wait a minute, oh, I learned this, I learned that, I learned that as a result of reading Hands. But have you ever thought about writing a book that does not have that element? You've got this very sweet spot where you're writing these very entertaining books that also have this Kaiser Soze element of like, this book has actually taught me a lot about problem solving, maybe for my own life, maybe directly for my own life, or maybe indirectly for my own life. But have you ever thought about, do you sometimes strain at the type of books that you've been writing and want to do something that is 
not gonna <laughs> that is not going to have that problem solving element that is not going to that is going to be maybe a weirder James Kennedy type book. Oh my God, Matt, Matt, don't <laughs> encourage him to be like me. He's on a hot streak. He's so successful. Don't tell him to do anything other than what he's doing. Yeah. Do you, you know, have Do you have one of those books in you, Troy? Um, well, there, there are two parts to that answer. One is, so I do cook into my stories um, subtle hints of messages but I don't do it in the form of this is the lesson. Yes. No, not at all. I, I do I I cook them in in the form of values that yeah. that I want young people to build. And so these are some values that come to mind. I want young people to develop agency. I want young people to develop persistence and perseverance. I want them to develop open-mindedness. I want them to develop uh, compassion, courage, empathy, kindness. These are things that I, I hear and I see in schools across the country. A lot of times you walk into a school and they have these values, right? We, we uphold integrity in this school. Yeah, okay, that's great. But there's no definition. There's no defining of what integrity looks like acted out by a young person in that school. So it feels as though that value is hollow. I feel as though the best schools, like the best stories, like the best movies and shows actually show you the value in action mm -hmm. so that yeah. young people, as they're reading and identifying with this character, they are also seeing how they could be one of those values. So those values exist in all of my books. So in that way, I, I'd subtly cook something authorial into the books. But again, it has to be very subtle because I'm aware of how I was turned off to books because they were just so didactic. And so stiff. Yeah. they just were mirrors of the worst teachers. That yeah. yeah, you're right that it's very much in the warp and woof of your books and not like put out as an explicit lesson. And, you know, I, I mean, I think, I mean, if, if we're going to go to that level of generality, I suppose Oddfish has that too. That is persistence and integrity and, and stuff like that in it as well. I think we are not so different, you and I. I, I agree. <laughs> I, think, I think that we're so similar that we should co-host a 90-second Newberry together. Yeah, there we go. You know, speaking of Kaiser Sose, I forced my girls to watch that too. And Ingrid was like, I, I can't take this. I have to walk out. I was like, no, you have to watch it because... I really want you to get this Key and Peele skit that I think is really funny, <laughs> which I don't know if you've seen the Key and Peele skit that's a takeoff on the end of The Usual Suspects. No, um, I don't remember this. No, it's it's really funny. Uh, um, <laughs> and and um, so, yeah, I, I made, Lucy was into it, but like Ingrid is like, oh, I got a piece out. I was like, well, just come back for the last scene. <laughs> <laughs> so you can get the joke. <laughs> you need to, it's a really funny sketch. The <laughs> listeners are definitely going to say, James, you and I are similar, that we're similar in that regard because my daughter also sat through the usual suspects with me and the entire time <laughs> she reacted like Trev when he was watching Return of the Jedi in hands. You know, what happens next? Tell me what happens next. What is going on here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think Tori and I are, are pretty similar, and uh, I think basically uh, the same person. I think he, he, just, he just has a better uh, grasp of what kids 
actually like because he comes in contact with them every day for his job. And I bet, uh, Tori, do you have your students read your books? Are they like your beta readers? No, I don't have my students be my beta readers. Um, one of the reasons is I feel that's like, I'm violating some child labor laws with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I let the, the young people discover my books on their own. So usually around mm. January, February, you'll have these kids bum rush my classroom door and say, hey, you didn't tell us you're famous. We looked you up on the internet. You're all over Google. We saw videos of you. And, and, and part of why I don't tell them about my, my writing life is because it will prompt the next question. Kids will say, how rich are you? Do you know Jay-Z? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You don't want to be like Professor Lockhart in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Like, you know, the person who's like announcing to everybody that you're, you know, an author and please buy my books on the first day of class. It's like, yeah, it's much more powerful if they just find out about it as like some kind of a, a extra quirk about you after you've established a true rapport with mm-hmm. them. That's true. Can, can I share something from the secrets of story that I wanted to do? So I, this is probably one of the toughest parts of writing hands. So Matt and James, in the secrets of story, you know that in chapter one, you talk about George Clooney and George Clooney's introduction in the pilot for ER. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned, let's see if I can find the page. I think it's page seven. Yep, it's page, yeah, it's page seven. It starts on seven. And, and you write, luckily, uh, George Clooney provides a great example. George Clooney's introduction in the pilot of, for ER. A pediatrician stumbles into the hospital after a night of partying. His exasperated colleagues forcibly hook him up to a saline drip to get him sober and he promptly falls asleep. When incoming patients jolt him awake, he leaps up and flies into action, saving lives. I instantly saw what the agent meant. That's the kind of introduction that lets you know right away that this is going to be a rich, deep character with eight seasons of conflict built into his DNA. And so that part was right at the forefront of my mind when I sat down to write the opening chapter of Hands. I was asking myself, how can I do it? And I thought this is going to be the longest chapter ever if I have to do all of those things that Matt <laughs> talked about. And surprisingly, this is the, the chapter that librarians and educators across the country always read to hook the kids. And it's only a paragraph long. Can I read it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Cool. And let me know if I, I managed to introduce a character that has Eight seasons of conflict baked into his DNA. Chapter one. You promise? I promise. People say people have promise, whatever that means. All I know is I got promises to keep. I have to. But which ones are right? Which ones are wrong? Messed up stuff happened with my stepdad. Has me feeling messed up feeling torn and confused about what to do. I thought my stepdad was the man. I tried to make him smile. Hope he'd accept me. Needed to be his boy after my pops died. Wanted to be his. Followed him. But not no more. Nah. Not after the night he got locked up with throwing hands. And not 
just with anyone. There you go. That's a fantastic first chapter. That is, there are eight seasons, seven seasons of DNA baked into that character. I think that one of the big things that I like about this book and why I think it's great that there is no big fist fight at the end is that it's more about questions than answers. And how many, what percentage of the sentences in that half page first chapter are questions <laughs> and in question marks? And this is a book that is not so much about answering questions as it is about asking questions and him realizing that that is his superpower to a certain extent is that he has to ask the right questions at the right times and the asking them is more important than hearing the answers. Yeah. And I think that if I write The Secrets of Story Part 3, I'm going to be as inspired by your book as you were inspired by my book. And I'm going to go like, okay, let's start with chapter one of Hands by Tori Maldonado. Thank you. <laughs> and I'll talk about the importance of questions because that's such, I mean, that's such a super short chapter. I mean, that's just, you just read that entire chapter. It's half a page. Who could not, there's nothing worse than getting, trying to read a book and getting bogged down in the first chapter. And you're like, oh, it was I a cloudless, sunny chapter. day in 1962. <laughs> the grass wafted in the breeze as I thought about my father. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I um, visited Stanford University and spoke to the, their youth in their summer programs this past summer. And there was this debate. Mm -hmm. And some of the kids asked, why didn't you make them fist fight? Why didn't you make the stepdad and the... Uh, and Trev face off with each other. And then other kids clapped back and said, that's not what the story's about. And I'm really glad that both of you had said, this isn't about hands. It's not about a fight. It's about questions. It's like what you say in, in Secrets of Story on page 31. You said, the audience wants to care about one big problem and follow it to its natural climax. And it turns out that the, there's a set of questions that the first chapter opens up with. And the natural climax is what both of you had said. It's the realization. It's the answers to the questions. The, the climax is the boy becoming the thing that he needs to become, not the thing that mm -hmm. he needed to be. Yeah, because it's, it's called hands, not fists. <laughs> it's so I talk about, one thing I talk about in the book is the theme should always come down to an irresolvable dilemma. And I talk about how solidarity versus individualism is one of the fundamental themes in all of literature, but especially in Western literature, especially in American literature. That's very much an element of this book. And him realizing that he is not going to solve his problem individually, that he is going to solve it as part of his community is sort of the answer in this book, and I talk about in my book how the ending should tip in one direction of the dilemma, but not definitively. And this ending tips in the direction of solidarity over individuality, over individualism, but not definitively. Mm -hmm. And he realizes in Return of the Jedi, Luke, every episode of this podcast inevitably comes back to proving everything by <laughs> referring to Star Wars and Stay Return of the target. Jedi. But uh, that Luke individually solves his problem, but he does it by appealing to solidarity with Vader. And that Trev's ultimate problem solving is tips more towards solidarity, but still has a lot of individualism to it. Which brings us back to where we began with 
breaking the window. Mm-hmm. And this great, you need to have a a big stand. He needs to use his hands at some point in the book. You need to have a moment of individual accomplishment in the book. He has to demonstrate his power. Of him solving a problem, but in a way that is completely not going to send the wrong message to your readers and is completely not going to confirm his mistaken notions. So this just in, there is a epidemic of a broken glass all throughout Red Hook uh, right now. <laughs> Windows are going down one after the other. <laughs> oh no, uh, Torrin, uh, our reporter on the scene says that the, these hooligans have a copy of Hands by Torrin <laughs> Maldonado. Uh, we, uh, or we talked to the mother of one of these windows. Well, my <laughs> window was a good boy and, and he just got broken and he shattered all over the place. You know who has to be interviewed in that? The windows that were broken. I was just standing here minding my business. And a fist came through me. Exactly. But it's so, you know, but it's, I don't know. Was that, to what degree were you relying on Secrets of Story? Were you thinking in terms of, okay, what is the thematic dilemma? Was that a question you asked yourself? I I definitely was thinking about what you said about the individualism versus solidarity. And one of the reasons why it works so nicely with hands is because hands revolves around a sport. It revolves around Mm -hmm. boxing. And what a lot of young people think is that boxing is an individual sport. And what hands brings to light is that it's actually a mix of individualism and solidarity because no boxer does it alone. They're corner people. Mm. There's a whole boxing team. And in hands, we have that whole village there. So this book, it touches on sports psychology of is it better to be an individual competitor? Are you? How much are you going to gain being an individual competitor? And what are the benefits of being on a team? How much further can you go? How much more can you gain? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that. that I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. That's one of the things he learns is boxing is less about the individual than it seems to be. I think that's great. Well, uh, did you do any research for this, Tori? Did you go to the gym and learn to box or did you try to punch out a window? This is um, circling back to two pieces of advice that comes through Secrets of Story. One, on page 45, you want to write the most interesting story that you identify with. This story is 90% to 95% my life. Um, there's no coincidence oh, really? that Trev is T and Tori starts with T. I was young Trev and I went through this. I also mm-hmm. went to the boxing gym. Um, which goes to the second thing that comes from the secrets of story. You were saying that you want readers to go into a world that they've never been in before, that they feel all of the transgressions and the thrills and the rushes and all of the other things that the main character is experiencing, but they don't have to leave the comfort of their own seat. They just experience it vicariously. So the world of the wreck that Trev walks into but people who are familiar with uh, boxing gyms, they, they've told me, they're like, how did you get it to that? And you had to have trained. I trained when I was Trev's age. Oh, really? To face the same person that Trev had to face. So this book is a page from my life. Yeah, I could tell what you're t- when you're talking about the way it socially breaks down in the wreck in which like kind of the, the way people size each other mm-hmm. up and like all the kind of like social dosy dosy you have to do yeah that that felt very much like it came from a lived experience of one kind or another mm-hmm. yeah 
and and so with the with the um hands I had to be a super aware that I was respecting and uh people who might read the book and say, Are you talking about me? <laughs> yeah. I wanted them not to give me that, you know, classic uh movie line of you must not be talking to me or talking about me. I wanted <laughs> yeah. them to, to be, they said, I'm walking right? here. <laughs> I wanted them to be happy and say, Oh, he's talking about me. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, well, this has been I don't know. I don't know if this episode has been painful for James to listen to someone who is literally citing my book chapter and verse exactly what James I think is always afraid that people will do. Um, James is always like, no, don't rely on Matt's advice, which I have no idea how I ended up recording a podcast with someone who feels that way about me, but but I did. Well, James said he likes to get nuggets of wisdom that goes down with spikes, so maybe this was good. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but I feel like this has been, obviously it's been a wonderful episode for me. I, uh, you know, when I first met my wife, we had overlapped at school just a little bit, but had never met. But I had directed a movie my senior year that she had seen. And then I met her years later at a party. And she's like, oh, yeah, we overlapped at school a little bit. We never met. But you made that movie. And don't you remember that scene in that movie? And then she quoted the scene from the movie to <laughs> me that she had memorized when she had watched it all those years before. And I was in love. <laughs> I, uh, I, I was. You were, you were in love with her because of her interest in your art not because of some intrinsic thing about her <laughs> i i am in love with me and when i when i heard someone quoting my own words back to me my own beautiful wonderful words back to me i fell head over heels in love with her oh my god I guess maybe she's also a good person in and of herself i don't know i've never bothered to find out but yeah. she most importantly, she was able to quote my stuff. So, Tori, now I'm no longer in my love with my wife. I'm in love with you instead because uh, I, I think you're I must quoting, be replaced as a podcast co-host, quoting chapter and verse. But uh, this is um, I am so glad that you have found some of this advice helpful. It has been fascinating for me to hear how it was. It is clear from your books. On the one hand, it's clear that you've given a lot of thought to story and that you are someone who understands the rules of the story and the secrets of the story. But on the other hand, it's not at all clear that you're someone who is relying on advice. It's not at all clear. You know, it seems like you're someone who just has a fundamental understanding of these rules. Like I said, there was only one moment in your book where I'm like, oh, okay, that that might be something like moving the timeline up. That's something he might have gotten from my book or might have gotten from a writing book. But so much of your book is like, writing books would tell him not to do that. <laughs> you know, this is, he is not following writing books. He is doing, you know, he is telling stories in a way where it feels like a real story that is the opposite of formulaic. But it is, uh, but it's been fascinating to hear that you actually, how much you have found a book like mine helpful. It's been fascinating to hear that. Thank you. That That's um, circling back to what James was saying that, you know, he as a writer and I as a writer, we don't want to come across as didactic. We want it to come across as seamless and and fun and and so when when I write I'm hoping that it just feels the way it's been described. There was there's this podcast called uh, Books Between Podcasts, and I'll never forget. I was listening because someone said you're mentioned in it, and I was listening, and so I was waiting and waiting and waiting for the host <laughs> to get to my book because she was doing the top twenty five books of the year. 
And she went on and on. I was like, this, I'm, I'm listening to the wrong podcast. I'm, my book is not here. And finally she says, you know, and the number one book of the year for me is, and she mentions my book. And when she mentioned it, I was just like, whoa. And the thing that she mentioned was this book does not feel like a book. It feels like a conversation. It's like this boy mm. sat down with me and just started talking in this easy way that I could understand. And then I find myself at the end of his story wanting to hear more, but he has to go. That's great. That's what you, that's a, it's what you want, ending on something that leaves them wanting more and yet feeling hopefully satisfied. And it sounds like she was if she put your book at number one. I was totally <laughs> expecting that story to go in a different direction. I was expecting, you know, you're like, oh, I must be number one. And then, you know, you're not number one either. And then she mentions your book in passing. Yeah, I, I was so that's shocked. That. That's how my story would turn. That's how my story, that's how, that's the sort of stories I tell. I like self, uh, I end up with self-deprecating stories. And so that's a compliment, uh, echo of what you were saying, that the books feel like they're into intuitively written and they written right and they fold in parts of the secrets of story in ways that people are not feeling oh this is obvious this is like writing from numbers or coloring from numbers no not at all and yet you are doing what uh what james always says not to do you're you're keeping in mind my advice not just in revision and yet at the beginning well that is wonderful thank you so much for all that you have done to promote my book over the years oh my god it's just this it just happened about once a week, I hear like, oh, I run into someone named Troy Montano who mentioned you. But it's been wonderful. And thank you so much for blurbing my second book. And I am, I'm happy to continue blurbing your books until I pass <laughs> the, I, I, until I meet your publisher's muster. And I'm impressive enough to do it. I'm impressive enough to make the cut. But, you know, but, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Oh, my God, Matt, such self-regard. Thank you, Tori, for coming on to the podcast. You were a delight. Thank you. You are a delight. This, yes, this was wonderful. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It was, it was an absolute pleasure. And I'm glad to not have been on the listening aspect of it and hearing you guys banter, but actually being in the cut and being in the middle of the action. It was fun. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Tori. Okay, Tori, this is wonderful. Is there anything you want to plug before you go? Probably some of the things that are coming up. Because the ideas that came through in the secret of stories, I was happy to try to make middle grade stories that are popular with upper elementary kids and with high school kids come to life. I took some of your ideas and tried my hand at writing picture books. And so I'm really Uh excited because um, starting next year and then every year after that, I have picture books that will be published with Nancy Paulson. I'm also very excited that um, I'm a part of an anthology called Boundless, where you'll see some more of your ideas neatly uh, stitched into certain stories. And then I have an anthology coming out in January. Um, I'm a part of it. It's written by the New York Times bestselling author Tiffany Jewell, um, who and it's the book that the anthology is called Everything I Learned About Racism I Learned in School. And I have a piece in that. And then in February, I'm in another anthology by Sandra Proudman. And it's called Relit. And it's a retelling of classics. So it's my me trying my hand with the secrets of stories, ideas, and also sci-fi and fantasy. And I do a retelling of The Minotaur and Theseus set in a Brooklyn neighborhood. Fantastic. Uh-huh. So... 
that well, this is what I was hinting at before. Did uh, I wondered if you had any sci-fi in you? I wondered if you had anything that was a little less uh, realistic in you. And it sounds like you do. So this is uh, I can't wait to read that. That's I, I can't I can't wait because um, what we were talking about with you want to make the writing feel out of this world and and fun and that the kids are just diving into a rabbit hole that of exploration that they don't want to come out of. At the same time, I'm exploring issues of race and class. Um, so this story is a haunting, and it's a story about racial and class trauma in Brooklyn, where we learn how racism, classism, they can create complicated paths, like a labyrinth, and how some people can become monsters and some people become heroes. Oh my God, I can't wait to read it. That's wonderful. Okay, well, Tori, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a wonderful episode. I guess we will go ahead and wrap things up. America, thank you for listening. We will see you soon. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Bride of the Tornado, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.